you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We've just finished our study in the book of Acts and characteristic of Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, book by book, and so we've just finished the book of Acts. We're now going to be in the book of Romans. And it's a really neat transition as we get into the book of Romans. The title of this morning's message, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses in Romans chapter 1. And so the title of this morning's message is Paul's Singular Passion. Paul's Singular Passion. Let's go ahead and stand together. And then we're going to read these first seven verses, pray, and then we'll get into study the word this morning. Forgive me for a little bit. I'm having some allergies, and so I might have to cough a little bit, and my nose is running a little bit. So please forgive me for that. It seems like allergies this year are worse than last couple years. So forgive me if I start sniveling up here <laughs> a little bit. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and we praise you and Lord, are so grateful for the opportunity to get into your word. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you'd speak to us individually and corporately as a body of believers and Lord, that you would move us, that you would that you would somehow open the understanding of our hearts and minds so that we would be able to see you for who you are and respond to you accordingly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Garrett, would you do me a favor? Would you mind getting me a cup of water real quick? These allergy pills are making me, giving me a little bit of dry mouth. Um, The book of Romans is called the book for every Christian, and arguably it is the greatest book ever written that details the great doctrines of the Christian faith. The great Bible expositor Donald Gray Barnhouse once said that if you take the Bible of any genuine Christian and you drop it on its binding on a table, it should open to the book of Romans. Not only does it teach us the great doctrines of the Christian faith, But more importantly, it profoundly brings God himself to us. It's been the most influential tool in the conversion of souls than any other book written in recorded history. Thank you so much. In fact, when pastors and Bible teachers are asked, if the Bible was taken away from you and you could choose one book to have, what one book would you choose? 72% of Bible teachers and pastors chose the book of Romans. It's that influential. How influential, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Most, if not, of all the great revivals and great reformations in church history have been directly related to and find their moorings in the book 
of Romans. Let me give you a couple examples. In September 386 AD, a native of North Africa who had been a professor for several years at Milan, Italy, sat weeping in his garden. And in the distance, he heard a young child singing these words, tole legi, tole legi, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. And sitting next to him was a scroll of the book of Romans. And he picks it up and began to read. And these verses caught his eye. Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Not in carousing or in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife, in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This man would later write, no further would I read, no, nor did I need, for instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, or security infused in my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And you guess who that was? Who was it? Yes, St. Augustus, right? He would be say, as he read that passage, all of a sudden he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and went on to become one of the church's most renowned theologians and leaders. Just over a thousand years later, an Augustinian monk in the Roman Catholic order was teaching the book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, And he was carefully studying this text, and he became more and more convicted by Paul's central theme of justification by grace. And he wrote these words, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. And night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth of the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took a new meaning to me. Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love this passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And that was Martin Luther. Several centuries later, an ordained minister in the Church of England was similarly confused about the meaning of the gospel and was searching uh, for genuine experience of salvation. And one evening, a Wednesday night, May 24th, 1738, he wrote this in his journal. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of the book of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was still describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Any guess as to who that might be? You guys ever heard of John Wesley? (laughs) So John Wesley, he was an ordained minister, and yet it was through the book of Romans that he came to understand saving grace in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So truly the road to revival leads through this book. More literally, it springs forth from this book. 
It was that way for me. Romans was the, the last book I read as an unrepentant sinner. And it was the first book I read as a new creation in Christ. The book of Romans was the key that unlocked the fog of religion that had enveloped my understanding of church. It taught me that as a child of God, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. A relationship that says to each and every one of us, just respond. Just respond. The work is done. The price has been paid. Warren Wearsby said this about the book of Romans, while all scripture is inspired of God and profitable, there are some parts of the Bible that contain more doctrinal truth than others. Romans is a great exposition of the faith. It is the complete and most logical presentation of Christian truth in the entire New Testament. If a Bible student wishes to master any one book of the Bible, let it be the book of Romans. An understanding of this book is a key to unlocking the entire word of God. I am excited to get into the book of Romans. So let's get into it. Verse 1, Paul begins his letter by personally describing his credentials and his intent to his readers. Paul, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The word bondservant here in the New King James is the word doulos in the Greek. It means one who is willfully subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. Key words, willfully or voluntarily subservient to, entirely at the disposal of his master. Paul introduces himself to the believers there in Rome, interestingly enough, whom he has never met Okay, he's never met these guys, and so he introduces himself, and the first thing he says about himself is this, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, that he's a man under authority, and that his master is Jesus. He willingly has given up his life to serve him who died in his place. He has willingly chosen to become a slave for life, yielding his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, in essence, becoming the personal property of Jesus. You guys have seen those shirts probably in the past where it says property of Christ or property of Jesus. That was stamped upon the heart of Paul. The idea goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21. If a slave was released from his service and he loved his master, he loved his wife, he loved his children, and he wanted to remain under the the covering of his master, he would go to his master and say to him, I love you, I want to stay here. My, my family loves it here. You care for us. We want to stay underneath the covering of your care. And so his master would then take him to the doorpost of the house and drive an all through his ear and put an earring in his ear, signifying that he was a voluntary, willful slave for life. So what does it mean to serve Christ in this way? To live and breathe for him, to love him and serve him with all that we are, our very passions and desires, our dreams, our ambitions consumed in him. After all, isn't that the quest of every true Christian to understand and appropriate what it means to be totally and completely lost and consumed in Jesus? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1. I'm reading for the amplified version. I'm sorry, I didn't 
I wasn't quick enough to get my slides up, so you're just going to have to bear with me, and you can flip to Romans 1 if you want. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, and consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. Listen to what he says. Listen to the words. Paul is writing to the Romans. He says, I appeal to you. I beg you in view of everything that Jesus has done for us. Everything that God the Father has done for us. Everything that the Spirit of God is doing in us. I beg you. I I appeal to you to make a decisive dedication of your bodies. Presenting every member of your body, of all your faculties, mind, heart, soul, strength to him as a living sacrifice. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said it this way, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is literally saying this, that the old Paul, with his old aspirations and ambitions and dreams, his sins, his mistakes, his pride, all of that, his fear, his guilt, his shame, all of that is dead and buried. And the life that he now lives, the life that he was given by Jesus Christ, he now chooses to dedicate to the service and worship of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. Paul chose to serve the Lord in totality. Any Bob Dylan fans here in the room today? There's at least one, two, three, four, five. Good, Bob Dylan fans. Bob Dylan said this, everyone will serve someone. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Paul chose to serve the Lord in totality. And so the first thing he does is he introduces himself to these Christians there in Rome. He says, I am a bond servant, a servant by choice, willingly, voluntarily, ultimately, and utterly committed in every aspect to the service of my Savior Jesus. Secondly, he tells us that he is an apostle. The word apostle means one who is sent out. Interesting, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we're told this, that God the Father appointed one apostle, and that was Jesus. And then Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he appointed 13 apostles. You might be going, wait, 13? It was 12, right? It was 12. I mean, you go into the, the chapel there, there's 12 apostles on the wall, six on one side, six on the other. Where's the 13th? Remember, Judas fell in Acts chapter 1. They decided to fill that vacancy and they brought in Matthias and then later on Jesus himself would call the apostle Paul to be the 13th apostle so what's interesting is this (laughs) excuse me this apostolic calling this office of apostle it really doesn't exist in our contemporary age today it was only for the first century church for a uniquely appointed purpose. God appointed these men uniquely and specifically for this purpose to testify and bear witness of the risen Christ 
and to establish and to strengthen the early church. In fact, in the New Testament, we're given very specific criteria of the qualifications of an apostle. Remember in Acts chapter 1, we just referred to it, verses 21 and 22, they're thinking that they need to fill in that vacancy that um, was left by Judas. And so they come up with this idea, we've got to fill it, Peter stands up, we need to fill this, we need to make sure that we have 12 disciples, or 12 apostles. And so he says, this is the things we need. In verse 21 and 22, he says, number one, they need to have been with us from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. All the times that he went in and out, they needed to have been with us throughout that entire time. Second, they need to have had witnessed the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. I know Rory said you're not supposed to use your fingers to count, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> okay, so number one, they were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. Number two, they witnessed his baptism by John the Baptist. Number three, they witnessed the resurrection. And number four, they witnessed the ascension. Very clear. Let me ask you this. Are there any individuals on this planet today that fit that criteria? None. You might say, well, Paul didn't fit that criteria. You're exactly right. He didn't. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul tells us that he was called personally by the risen Christ to be an apostle, an apostle born out of time. Okay? He even says of himself that he's the least of all the apostles. Right? So, we understand there's, a very, there's very clear criteria, those four things, with Jesus from the beginning, witnesses baptism, witnesses resurrection, witnesses ascension. Secondly, there's this thing called the foundational truth of apostleship. The foundational truth of apostleship found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Paul writes this to the church there in Ephesus, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's writing these individuals who were raised in kind of, uh, you know, Gentile culture, whereas once they were strangers, once they were foreigners, once they were outside the household of God, now they've been brought in, now they're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. But even more than that, he says that you are members of the household of God. Sons and daughters of God. And he goes on to say this, having been built, past tense, having been built on the foundation, singular, of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So many of us in this room have done construction before. When you lay a foundation, how many times do you need to lay that foundation when you're building? Just once, right? And that foundation dictates the footprint of that building, doesn't it? It dictates the, the, how that building is going to be laid out, right? And you can change on the inside all kinds of things. But that footprint is established once and for all. It's secure. And here Paul tells us, listen, that the church is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament prophets. We don't have any more. And the New Testament apostles has been past tense, foundation singular, never to be built upon again. Okay? And so we have this idea, there's four criteria, and we also have this idea of the, the foundation of apostleship. So there may not be apostles 
in the New Testament term in our day and age today. But God still does call out ones to go forth, doesn't he? We call those missionaries, right? Sent ones, to be sent out from the church. And to be called as a missionary, to go out, man, in my, as, as an ex-missionary, I lived in Brazil for several years and pastored a church there and, and helped plant churches and a Bible college there in Brazil. And we did missions work in Europe as well. Uh, man, and I never thought it was a missionary. People always say, oh, you're a missionary. I'm like, no, I'm just a pastor planting a church. Because in my mind, missionaries are the superheroes of the church. They are the superheroes of the church. It is hard to be a missionary in this world, right? So this is a great calling that God has upon people's lives to go forth and to bring the gospel to unreached peoples, right? But you say, well, what about, what about me? I feel like I'm missing out in some way. I feel like somehow if I don't have the, the call to be a missionary, that somehow I'm missing out on the blessings of God and the goodness of God in my life. Listen, to be a carpenter, to be a teacher, to be a salesman, a parent, a farmer, a rancher is just as holy and just as important if you're doing it for him. If you're a baker or a banker, if you're a mechanic or a cook, yours is an important calling because of the need for brothers and sisters to serve in all kinds of arenas and venues and locations and to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't think that you're missing God's best if you're not a missionary. Listen, serve God wholeheartedly right where you're at. Bear witness of him right where you're at. Be at peace about it and say, Lord, if this is what you have for me, I'm going to do it for your glory. I'll be salt and light as I labor for you right here where I'm planted. And so Paul says, number one, he says, I'm a bondservant. I'm an apostle. And thirdly, he says, I'm separated. Grammatically, this word means that God not only separated or set him apart for for himself, but that continues to do so. God continues to set Paul apart. As if God's hand was upon Paul, moving and directing, guiding him throughout every ambition, every, every venture that he had him on. When Paul was led by the Lord, called out, separated by God, the question we have to ask ourselves is, when did that happen? When did that take place? When God called Paul. Well, we know about this in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. We know that the Spirit separated Paul unto the gospel. It says in verses 13, verse 2 of Acts, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And what's interesting is even before the Spirit separated Paul, the Scriptures tell us that the Son separated Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, letters in hand, desiring to persecute the church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus meets him. This light, bright light shines upon him. Paul falls to the ground. He hears a voice and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And remarkably, before the Spirit called Paul, And before the son called Paul, the father separated Paul before he was even born. And Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul says, God separated me from my mother's womb and called me through grace. From his mother's womb. It just took some time before Paul was willing to surrender to that call. 
And I say that to remind us as parents that our kids have a future. And might I even say they have a divine future. Therefore, our job as parents is not so much to to mold and shape them, but listen, to unfold them and to release them into God's calling for their lives. Yes, it's true we have expectations and we have dreams and we have desires for our kids. But in reality, wise is the father and wise is the mother who says, Lord, show me this day what you want for my son and daughter, what you want them to be, what you want them to do. And help me, Lord God, get on your plan (laughs) and help me to flow with what you want. Amen? When Saul was persecuting the church, when he was going from town to town and he was dragging Christians out in the street and he was imprisoning them, he was beating them, he was even putting them to death. What's interesting is this, all the while, the father knew that he would eventually serve the church. Saul had no idea, but God knew it. God knew it. Ten years ago, I've been serving the Lord now for almost 30 years of my life in vocational ministry. Ten years ago, my mom told me a story that was pretty remarkable. Uh, When I was about somewhere between two and four years old, my mom was a single mom. She'd just gone through a divorce. She uh, was putting herself through nursing school, working two jobs, and taking care of two kids. And she was having a really hard time. And she grew up Catholic, but hadn't been to church in a long time. And she had heard that there was a church service in the midweek. And so she decided to go to this Protestant church, kind of a charismatic church. And they had a guest speaker who was talking about prayer and prophecy. And as he was sharing, my mom broke down. She's sitting in the back of the church and she broke down and started crying. And this lady next to her tried to comfort her, put her arm around her and tried to comfort my mom. And afterwards she said, would it be okay if I wanted to ask the pastor to come and pray? for you and she said yes and so she went and got the pastor and his wife and and also the guest speaker and they came forward and they laid hands on my mom and began to pray and all of a sudden the guest speaker began to prophesy over my mom and he said to her your son will be used by God to lead many to saving faith in Jesus Christ fast forward 17 years I'm a 19 year old college student living like a heathen. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I get radically saved. And then two years later, I enter into, I never even thought about ministry. People always ask me, how did you you get involved in ministry? I said, literally, it was by accident. (laughs) I I was at this church, and they had, were going through transition. They needed a, a new youth pastor, and so they had let their old youth pastor go. And so they just happened to ask me for whatever reason, because I was a high school teacher, um, for any reason, for whatever reason, they asked me to come on and, and to be the interim youth guy. And I literally thought, well, how hard can it be? Sure, I'll do that. And I walked into it, and I have never turned back since then. Almost 30 years of being in ministry. And it wasn't until 10 years ago that my mom told me that story that God had spoken to her, that her son would one day serve the Lord and be an instrument to lead people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, for 19 years, I lived as a Philistine. (laughs) I lived as a heathen. And like Paul, I 
hurt people along the way. I grieved the heart of God. I disappointed my parents. I embarrassed them at times. And yet, what I didn't know is what God did know, that like Paul, one day I would serve him and serve his church. And I say all that to, to encourage you as parents. We don't know what God has in store for our kids. Shouldn't we be praying, Lord, what do you want for them? Not, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I desire. But Lord, what do you want for them? What do you want them to be? Show me, Lord, and help me then to unfold them and release them to your call upon their life. So Paul says three things. Number one, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's separated for what purpose? Now he tells them the purpose, to the gospel of God. The Greek word for gospel is the word evangelion, where we get our English word evangelist from. In the Septuagint, which is the, the um, Greek Old Testament, this word was used to describe people who were being released from Babylonian captivity, and it spoke of a heralding, a proclamation. It meant, you can go home, <laughs> is what it meant. You're free. Good news. The late Timothy Keller said this, Put most simply, the gospel is an announcement and a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is news, good news about what has been done. F.F. Bruce defines the gospel this way, the joyful proclamation of the death and resurrection of his son and the consequent amnesty and liberation which men and women may enjoy through faith in him. I love that. I love that. The consequent amnesty and liberation that men and women can enjoy through faith in him. Karl Barth, the Swiss Reformed theologian, stresses the otherness of the gospel by saying this, the gospel is not a religious message to inform mankind of their divinity or to tell them how to become divine. The gospel proclaims a God utterly distinct from men. In other words, God has fulfilled his longtime promise to reclaim his fallen creation and to provide his people with a new and secure relationship with himself. Truly, the gospel is good news. It is not just good advice. Paul wasn't separated unto the good advice of Christian living. Paul was separated under the good news of the gospel. Verse 2, which he, God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Here in verse 2, Paul talks about the faithfulness of God, how God promised to bring the Messiah. And all through the Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices were pointing to this moment when the Messiah would come. 25 years before Paul penned this epistle, he became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus when he said, Lord, what would you want me to do? What a great question. All of us have stuff in front of us, schedules to keep, things that need to be accomplished, deadlines to meet. All of us have that stuff. But what a great question every morning to ask, Lord, this is what's in front of me. This is what I have going on today. 
or this week. But Lord, what would you have me do? What a great question. And for 25 years, Paul kept that question at the forefront of his lips, constantly committed to Christ. The key to Paul's ministry was his commitment to the risen Jesus. He left everything to focus on one thing singularly, serving Jesus passionately. One thing singularly, serving Jesus passionately. Listen to what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Wow. That was his singular passion that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Douglas Moo said in saying that he's been set apart for the gospel of God, Paul is claiming that his life is totally dedicated to God's act of salvation in Christ. A dedication that involves both his own belief in and obedience to that message. Jesus was Paul's singular objective. Now, we all have goals. We all have aspirations and ambitions. And those aren't necessarily bad. They can be good things. But we need to make sure that those things are a distant second to our singular passion, who should be Jesus. Our singular passion should be Jesus. Or as Paul says, that we might gain Christ and be found in him. In my studies this week, I came across this article about a man named Steve um, who was uh, committed to golf, right? Committed to golf, as I'm looking at, at Lucas Teske over here. <laughs> committed to golf. Every single day, every, literally, the article talked about every single day he would golf, every week, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, he was golfing. That's commitment, right? I don't know anybody that does stuff like that every single day. The story goes on and talks about how several years would go by and Steve was still playing golf and one day he was about to just tap in the ball into the cup on the 16th green and he looks up and he sees a funeral procession driving by and he stops, takes off his hat and he just stands in silence for a moment. His golfing buddy was amazed (laughs) that he actually stopped to do something like this and said, wow, man, Steve, that was really respectful. And Steve put his hat back on his head and got his position, get ready to putt this ball into the 16th, the cup on the 16th hole. And he says, well, I should be respectful. I was married to her for 30 years. (laughs) When Jesus isn't our singular passion in life, things can get wildly out of whack. And as a Christian, when Jesus is not that, you'll start seeing things happen in your personal life, in your relationships, in your family, in your work life. Things will start getting out of control and get really wonky. Verse 4 
and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul is literally saying, I am separated, set apart to the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus. Born of the seed of David, born of the flesh, declared to be the Son of God, he was among us, yet he was greater than us. He became a a man, yet he remains God the Son. The focus of the gospel is a person, Jesus, God's Son. We have a group of young adults that meet on Wednesday nights. They've been meeting for a couple months now. They gather together at a coffee shop here in town, and from, I think it's 6 to 8 o'clock on Wednesday evenings, they're going to be moving shortly because of the summer schedule, but that's what they're doing. And what's neat about it is they're studying through Ephesians, they worship together, and then they have an opportunity for someone to stand up and give a testimony, and then someone to give the gospel. Every single week, they give a gospel message, because we should be able to give the message of the gospel in two or three minutes in just a short amount of time because it's all about who Jesus is. Through him, verse five, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called the called of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news for all those who respond in faith, but faith inevitably issues out of obedience. Let me say that again. Faith inevitably issues out of obedience. Robert Munt said this, faith is not intellectual assent to a series of propositions, but it is surrender to the one who asks us to trust him. Biblical faith is not some mild assent to a collection of ethical maxims, but an active commitment of one's life. Obedience is the true measure of a person's faith. Obedience is a true measure of a person's faith. E. E. Best said it this way, faith and obedience go inextricably together. Only in obedience is there faith, for faith is not emotional feeling or intellectual acceptance, but active response to a person. Let me ask you this this morning. Does that describe your faith? Does it spring from obedience? Because obedience is a true measure of a person's faith. And is there this active response to the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ daily, moment by moment in your life? The word called in verse 6 parallels Paul's testimony about himself in verse 1 where he said he was called to be an apostle. Douglas Moose says call and its cognates are used by Paul to express an effectual calling. What that means is that there should be a change. There should be a transmission from who we used to be to who we are now in Christ. His nature, his character are now becoming more and more part of who we are. What is meant is not an invitation. I love what Douglas Moose says here, this word call. What is meant is not an invitation, but is the powerful and irresistible reaching out of God to bring people into his kingdom. That's what it means to be called by God. This powerful reaching out of God in his grace to bring people to himself. Paul's meaning here is that the purpose of God is that every nation, every tribe, every tongue on this planet would know the grace of saving faith in Jesus Christ and secondly would experience a committed lifelong discipleship as we grow in relationship with him. 
Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It should bring with it grateful, joyful, trusting obedience. And finally, verse 7, Paul identifies who this letter is for. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The words to be, there where it says called to be saints are in italics in our Bibles because in the original Greek, they're not there. So this should literally read, beloved of God, called saints. Now, most people have in their mind this idea that saints are specific, special people in religious history. But the truth is, the Bible says there are only two categories of people on this planet. You're either a saint or you're a what? An ain't. (laughs) A saint or an ain't. And notice that Paul uses another phrase to remind us of who we are in Christ. Beloved of God. In designating the Roman Christians as beloved of God and called to be saints, he implies that we are all, every one of us, God's chosen people, peculiarly his. These two descriptions remind believers that who we are depends on God's love and God's call. Leon Morris said, the word contains a challenge to faithful Christian service. Man, this is a challenging quote for me. (laughs) I read this this morning. I'm like, whoa. I just sat and pondered this for a while. The word of being called a saint contains a challenge to faithful Christian service. For saints should live in accordance with the character implied in being thus set apart. We're called Christians. We should live like it. We should act like it. We should talk like it. We should think that way. Paul uses this word saints 38 times to designate Christians. The focus being not on behavior, but on status. Christians are those who have been sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Therefore, if you are a believer in Christ here this morning, you are a saint. Last night, after a prayer meeting, I was putting chairs away, (coughs) excuse me, in the chapel over there. And you know, like I mentioned before, there's stained glass, right? There's six apostles on one side and six apostles on the other. And the sun was coming through. And even this morning, I saw it again. The sun was coming through and it creates this kaleidoscope of color on the ground. It's awesome. It's really pretty. And it reminded me of a story of a little boy who attended a church, that beautiful stained glass that depicted St. Paul and St. Peter and St. John. And one day when he was in Sunday school, he were asked the question, what are saints? And listen to what his response was. He says that saints are people who the light shines through. People who the light shines through. What a great answer. Jesus said the same thing. You are the light of the world, John, or Matthew chapter 5. and verse 16, he says, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. You and I are saints called by God to be people who the light shines through. Romans 1, 7, again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, when the Greeks would greet one another, they would use the Greek word charis or grace. When Jews would greet one another, we'd use the Hebrew word, shalom, which means peace. Charis, shalom, grace, and peace. And interestingly, as Paul writes his letters, he's the most prolific author in the New Testament, the majority of his greetings carry those two words, grace and peace, always together and always in that order, grace 
and then peace. Why is that? Because man will never experience peace until he understands grace. He'll never experience peace until he understands grace. And if you're trying to be holier and you're trying to be more deserving of God's blessings, your Christian life will be absent of peace. There might be moments of it, but you'll not be at peace. You'll not be content. But if you endeavor to understand grace, that God blesses and gives us his loving favor unconditionally, unmerited, unearned, then you'll stop trying to earn his blessings and you'll learn to rest in his peace. And notice the source of grace and peace. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the source, our peace is both positional and it's unconditional, as Romans 5.1 tells us. It's positional because we are the children of God. It's unconditional because the Father's favor does not rest upon who we are or what we have done but on what Jesus Christ has already done. We all know this. Jesus has taken upon himself all all of our shortcomings, all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our weaknesses, all of our rebelliousness. And Paul opens his letter to the Romans by telling them that real peace, lasting peace, only comes as a result of the grace of God. Grace is what we receive. Peace is what we experience as a result of the activity of God on our behalf. I'm going to have the worship team start coming forward. You can go ahead and close your Bibles. And let's go ahead and stand as this last few couple closing comments here before we end. We're going to try to end here close to being on time. Sorry for going a little long. But in these first seven verses of the book of Romans, Paul successfully presents who he is by stating his credentials, bondservant, apostle, separated, and then he tells us what he's all about. He's all about the gospel. The key to success in the Christian life is understanding who we are in light of who Jesus is. Jesus is the heart of the gospel. He's the promised Messiah, the seed of David, the Son of God, the Lord. And confessing the gospel in our day and age requires that we subscribe to Paul's exalted view of Jesus. Because it's not just about who he is, but about what he has done that makes the gospel the good news that it is. Again, this morning's title is Paul's Singular Passion. In Philippians 3.13, he says this, One thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hear those words again. Forgetting those things that are behind. The patterns that you've lived in. The ruts that you're stuck in. The guilt, the shame of your past. Forgetting those things. Reaching forward to those things that are ahead has this idea of, of running a race. We just finished track season, right? A lot of, the, a lot of the, the kids in church here are part of the track program. A lot of the parents have been going to those meets. Understand that the picture of, a, of an athlete stretching forward across the line. And that's the picture here of Paul pressing forward, reaching forward to cross the finish line, doing whatever it takes, every muscle, every sinew, just firing to to cross that line 
with one goal in mind, to gain the prize, to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. For Paul, his singular passion was Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this same mind. May I encourage you this week, as a brother in Christ, encouraging other brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's endeavor to make Jesus our singular passion. Let's encourage one another to reach forward, to press toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father, this morning, we just thank you for our time in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would go before us. The things we've heard today, the things we've been challenged by, Lord, if there's anything, anything good that would come from today, may it be that our hearts perhaps have been turned to you once again. And I pray, Lord, that in any way that, um, Lord, in my, in my weakness and in my inability to communicate, I pray, Lord God, that you'd overlook my inadequacies as a man and as a teacher. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives so that we could be, as Paul talks about, solely committed to you and that everything else in our lives would have a distant second to that pursuit of gaining Christ and being found in him. 